0: Good morning, and welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. I am your co-host, Emma Halliday, here with my other co-host, Jennifer Jung. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics that aim to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show will discuss guardianship law in Ontario with a comparative focus on the conservatorship of Britney Spears.
1: Before we start the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on this show did not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, hosts, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC Queen's Law student volunteers. PBSC students are not lawyers and we are not authorized to provide legal advice. This podcast contains general discussion of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer. And now for our show.
0: In the last few years, the Free Britney movement exploded. And just recently, in November 2021, Britney Spears celebrated the end of her 13-year conservatorship. It all started in 2007 with the infamous paparazzi photos of her shaving her head and bashing a car window with an umbrella. At the time, many were calling her behavior erratic and for her to be placed in a psychiatric hospital. During this time, she was going through a divorce and had just lost custody of her two children. After being hospitalized for her mental health in 2008, her father officially filed for a conservatorship. In California, conservatorship appoints a guardian to manage the financial affairs of an individual who is deemed incapable to do so due to physical or mental limitations. Her father, Jamie, was granted temporary conservatorship, allowing him to control her home and other liquid assets. Conservatorship was shared with another lawyer. By 2012, her then-fiancé was added as a co-conservator, giving him control over her food, clothing, and medical care. For nearly 10 years, this ensued until early 2019, when Britney stopped performing she announced an indefinite work hiatus. Later that year, she requested the conservatorship come to an end, by which point the Free Britney movement was exploding on social media. By September 2019, her father stepped down and was replaced with a court-appointed care professional. Britney attained her own lawyer and through them communicated her fear of her father and refusal to return to the stage so long as he was controlling her. In
1: 2021, Britney's voice was finally heard. She pleaded that she just wanted her life back until officially November 12, 2021, an LA Superior Court judge terminated the 13-year conservatorship. So how did Britney's case get to this point? And what would have happened if Britney Spears was in Ontario? In Ontario, we have a legislation called the Substitute Decisions Act, enacted in 1992. Within this act, If an adult is alleged to be incapable, such that they require a person to manage their property and or personal care, a person may apply to the court to become a guardian. Various sections describe the documents, tests, and duties that are required for a person to be appointed as a guardian. Guardian applicants must ensure that the alleged incapable person is aware of the application and what it entails, and if approved, the guardian must continue to communicate and consult with the incapable person to ensure they are acting in their best interest. This is our overview of the legislation in Canada, but we will now deep dive into what is really required and what the guardianship process looks like by talking to a legal expert.
0: Joining us now is Professor David Freeman. David is an associate professor at Queen's Law. He obtained his LLB at Osgoode before obtaining his postgraduate degrees at Oxford and Cambridge. He has taught trust, wills and estates, estate litigation, civil procedure, and trial advocacy. He also maintains a practice with Wagner, Sadowski, LLP in Toronto, where he practices in estates, trust, and guardianship law. David's teaching focuses on foundational principles and skills so students can understand the content of law and its application in real situations. We are very excited to have Professor Friedman with us today to help understand guardianship law and how it could have applied if Britney Spears were in Ontario. Thank you so much for meeting with us. How are you?
2: I'm good. I'm good. How are you both doing?
0: Uh, We're okay. We're adjusting to being back in school.
2: It's actually quite encouraging, you know. I'm uh, I'm really glad to be back.
0: So we just wanted to have you give us a little bit of an overview about how you kind of got into this area of practicing elder and guardianship law.
2: Okay, um, so the areas that um, I teach in and practice in are are broadly estates, trusts, and guardianship, and um, they're all kind of related. Um, practically, you know, a lot of this involves um, older adults and and aging, so that People will create, uh, wills and what are called powers of attorney. Um, and, um, they'll, that will change as they, um, grow older. And there may be litigation that, are, that's required either along the way or after the fact where something has gone wrong. So I, um, I began really looking at more at trust doctrine more than anything else, which led me into estates, which led me into, um, guardianship law or substitute decision-making laws I I think would be better termed in Ontario Um, just because it involves the same um, group of the same group of clients or the same segment of the population and um, in terms of guardianship one of the things that really propelled me to to get into this area is it's not there's legal aid doesn't fund these things so where there are um, a need for guardianship proceedings unfortunately um, unless someone has means to be able to hire a lawyer oftentimes it's going to depend on either the capacity of a legal aid clinic to handle something like this which they either may not have capacity or expertise or a pro bono lawyer. I've done a lot of work pro bono, um, and that's what led to uh, the Elder Law Clinic, um, because I wanted to, to start something that I thought that students would be able to do parts of, you know, not necessarily complex litigation or complex planning, but under supervision could provide services dealing with these issues to indigent uh, older adults under supervision in a law clinic. It's an area that I think it's difficult in terms of law, but it's absolutely fascinating. And it is really necessary in an aging society to have access to the law, respecting how decisions are made on behalf of a person that's not able to make them for themselves.
1: Queen's Elder Law Clinic is the first of its kind in Canada. We felt that Professor David Friedman's expertise in elder law, among his many practices, could provide some insight into how guardianship law even came to be in Canada, and Ontario specifically. Uh, To follow
0: with that, um, could you provide some insight on what the purpose of guardianship law in Canada in general, and maybe specifically in Ontario, perhaps why it exists and how it's been used historically in Canada?
2: Okay, so... um... Let me talk to you about um this area of law generally. So in Ontario we have something called the Substitute Decisions Act and we talk about a model of law about substitute decision making of which guardianship is a is a part. All of this um, started to be significant um, after the Second World War. Originally, this was an American uh, invention. There was a presidential commission in the late 40s and the beginning of guardianship and substitute decision-making models. So traditionally, the problem has been that somebody can um, enable someone else to make decisions for them through a document called the power of attorney. But as a matter of common law, power of attorney ceases to be operable where a person loses capacity, and that can be called lots of different things depending on the jurisdiction, or they die. And so it was thought that there should be um, a, a way legally of appointing someone in advance to make decisions for someone when they're no longer capable of doing so. There was a major restructuring of Ontario law in 1992, so that there was uh, three pieces of legislation that were passed together um, as part of a package, the Mental Health Act, the Healthcare Consent Act, and the Substitute Decisions Act. So in terms of Canada, then, this is provincial jurisdiction. So that's the first thing to notice. It means that the laws are approximately the same across the country, but not exactly. So there's not exact harmonization. The terms that are used are a little bit different from one province to another, but they're all more or less. They they share a model of law that, that I I think is pretty common. The only uh, province that sort of um, that hasn't modernized their law is Newfoundland and Labrador, and there isn't a a, a general substitute decision making statute. There's been a l- lot of good decisions from the Court of Appeal of Newfoundland and Labrador over the last few years to remedy that as a matter of common law. So um, whatever it's called, from one province to another, the, the law is basically this. A person that's mentally capable of making their own decisions, provided that they're of age, should be allowed to make their own decisions. So that means um, once a person reaches, you know, whatever the age is in the province to be able to contract in their own name, they can deal with their property as they wish and they can you know contract with others and be bound and all of that and and that's fine um as well as they can make their own healthcare decisions or decisions as to where they're going to reside what happens when a person loses the capacity to do that that is they lose the ability to understand the information that's relevant to a decision and they lose the ability to foresee the consequences Of a particular decision in those situations they require a substitute decision maker so then there's there's three points that come out of that which is what's the condition precedent for someone else to make decisions and that's bound up with capacity and so there has to be a legal uh, test for capacity and so there's a presumption and then there's a legal test for capacity then What's the nature of the decision that's going to be made, and are there any restrictions that that person has imposed or the law imposes on a substitute decision maker as to how they make decisions, and then what are um, the remedies are that are available where a person um, that's tasked with making decisions for someone else um, doesn't act in accordance with their legal obligations? So it's really, um, it's a very simple model of law that in a lot of ways is built on on trust principles. That is, there's one principle that um, comes out of equity and trusts, which is called the fiduciary principle. And as a matter of law, fiduciary obligation is a very special type of obligation. It's an obligation that's normally premised on good faith and trust and where one party is vulnerable to another. And so what we say is a person that's a substitute decision maker for a person that's incapable is a fiduciary. That is that they have to act in the best interests of the per- person they're making decisions for. So in Ontario, there's two roads that lead to substitute a substitute decision maker being able to make decisions for someone. One is through a document that a person makes while they're capable. And that we call a continuing power of attorney. And the other is where they haven't made that document or something else has happened, which requires the court to make an order. And that's called a guardianship order. But they're functionally the same. So We have a continuing power of attorney, and that can be for property management or for personal care. And personal care involves consent to health care, as well as things like residence and education and things like that. Or it can be for property management. Um, And there's a distinction between the two of them. A, A power of attorney for property management can have immediate effect and it can be um, useful for all the things that we used to use powers of attorney for. You know, you want somebody uh, you're leaving the country and you want your lawyer to be able to sign the closing documents on a house purchase while you're on vacation. And you give your lawyer a power of attorney and the power of attorney that lawyer can use that power of attorney to sign the closing documents in your name. And that's like a very traditional use of it. So it can be immediate and it can be limited. Like it's to my lawyer. It's only good for a week and it's only for the purposes of this transaction. And we can still do that. But beyond that, that continuing power of of attorney where it becomes really useful is obviously when a person lacks capacity to, to manage their property. Let's say they suffer from dementia and so they lose that ability. Now we can have that attorney take over that person's finances and manage that. Person's finances in their best interests. So that would be like paying their bills. They may have child support, paying their child support, paying their rent, paying for um, whatever services that are that are needed. A power of attorney for personal care is only exercisable when a person loses capacity. So as long as you're age 16 and have the ability to consent to health care treatment on your own right, then we look to somebody to do that on their own. The Mental Health Act and the Healthcare Consent Act are 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 quite um, narrow in the sense that they will uh, those, those statutes, particularly the Healthcare Consent Act, will allow for somebody to make decisions for someone else in an emergency. Like, let's say you're taken to the hospital. You know, God forbid you get into a car accident. You're unconscious. You have to go to the hospital. The doctors are not going to wait around. To see, you know, whether they can treat you or not, and have you die in front of them, so that there's a schedule of people that can consent um, to healthcare treatment on a person's behalf, including the doctor, um, you know, the spouse, the children. There's a, a schedule that's there, and that's normally in extremists, Like we need a decision right now once that you no longer have that extreme position that's when we would expect a substitute decision maker for personal care to make the decisions on on behalf of that person just to make sure that i'm making this absolutely clear the model of law we use in ontario is called substitute decision making that's that general model of law that says There are things that a person can do or a court can do to identify and authorize a substitute decision maker to make decisions for this person. Guardianship refers to where a court makes an order, where a person creates an instrument, and it's a particular kind of instrument called a continuing power of attorney that has formalities, requirements, and things like that. That is where a person designates somebody else in advance as being made, able to make decisions for them if they become incapable. So that students in law school, most don't have um, spouses or children or dependents. And so when they think about wills, they go, well, I don't have any property anyways, like who really cares? And you know what, that may be the right decision because there are you know provisions and statutes that deal with inheritance. But any one of us can be hit by a bus or have an accident or have an allergic reaction, which causes us to require medical treatment. Everybody should have a continuing power of attorney at the very least for personal care. And they should probably have a power of attorney for property management as well. It's the responsible thing to do because what you're saying is, if I can't make decisions for myself, here's the person I want to make decisions for me because I trust them. And in terms of a personal Care power of attorney. You can even put your wishes into that that power of attorney that limit or guide that person as to how they're going to make decisions for you. For example, um, uh, like do not resuscitate me if I have a heart attack and am now uh, I lose consciousness and, and my heart stops beating. Um, allow me to die a natural death. That may not be something that everyone, for moral, religious, other reasons believes it. You know, a lot of people would believe that, no, if there's any chance to save a person's life, we should intervene. And, and that might be appropriate, but that becomes a choice that relates to the values of the person who the decision is being made in respect of, which means that a power of attorney for personal care is really important because it says to the world, here's the person that I want to make decisions on my behalf for my personal care because they know what I want. And I'm gonna put it into maybe into the power of attorney itself. But beyond that, that's a person that has values that that are similar to mine and I trust. And that's why having a personal a power of attorney for personal care should be something that everybody does.
0: Yeah, I kind of just a question came up while you were talking. So it seems like that was you're talking more of a process of like, if I were doing it before I get older, but how would it work? Say I'm older. And I'm not capable of making my own decisions. So my child wants to now take over. How does that differ?
2: Right. So that's a guardianship application. If a person doesn't have capacity, and that has to be established as a matter of fact, um, and there are people that can give that evidence, there are people that are called designated capacity assessors who can utilize standardized tests to be able to make a determination that has uh, legal effect, or a court can make a declaration itself. So where a person is incapable and either there is no continuing power of attorney that's been made or the people that have been nominated don't want to do it like they they don't want to take up their appointment or they're doing a terrible job of it Um, the matter can be brought into court by an application for somebody to seek an order of the court appointing them as a guardian so parent doesn't make a continuing power of attorney now becomes incapable. The child wants to make decisions for them that necessitates an application to a superior court judge. So it's not any judge and that judge is going to have to determine not only is uh, the person incapable and what they're incapable of, but is the applicant to be their guardian? Is that the appropriate person or not? Now, if there's nobody that can be found, Nobody that's willing to come forward, then the Ontario Public Guardian and Trustee may either have a statutory jurisdiction where somebody is involuntarily admitted to a psychiatric facility. Um, so under the Mental Health Act, they can become automatically that person's um, uh, substitute decision maker, or they can be appointed by the court. So, but they're what's called the you know the the guardian of last resort. You know, government resources are not especially plentiful. Um, and so the public guardian and trustee is willing to get involved, but they will principally look to someone that's a family member or someone like that to take over those kinds of obligations. So that is guardianship.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned that a lot of these laws in Canada
1: were rooted or inspired by American laws. So today, are there a lot of differences Um in guardianship laws between America and Canada? And what are they? Are there differences in requirements or applications?
2: So there is a tremendous variation um, because in the United States, this is also state jurisdiction, not federal jurisdiction. So then all of the different states have their, um, their own laws. The same as in, in Canada, this is a matter of provincial jurisdiction rather than federal jurisdiction. So each province has their own laws. Our laws are in Canada are between the provinces much closer than together than the American laws. Um, we uh, start off from a presumption of autonomy as they do. So if you're able to make decisions for yourself, you should be able to do that. Um, but then there's a predicate fact that has to be satisfied for somebody else to make decisions. And I think all of the provinces that, um, predicate fact is an incapacity to make the decision in question. And so that is tested medically and legally. So it's a, a model of law that that speaks to considerations that are medical in nature that are tested legally. So capacity as a construct has no medical significance. What we can say medically is that if we ask whether a person can foresee, understand that relevant information to the making of a decision and foresee the consequences that legal test can be applied and explained medically so if you say well we understand what the test is um is this person that has alzheimer's disease are they able able to understand information that is relevant to a decision and um and foresee the consequences and there are psychological and psychiatric tools that we use to be able to evaluate that person uh, and say, as as a matter of of medical fact, whether a particular condition or insult to the brain or something like that would affect those those two criteria. It's a very high bar to be able to take away somebody's rights to decide for themselves where they're going to live, what they're going to use their money for. We don't ask whether a person is making the right decisions for themselves, right? Older adults that have dementia that still have capacity can act as stupidly as younger adults that don't have dementia and make decisions that are silly. So people get to make silly decisions for themselves. They don't have to make the right decision. What they have to have is the capacity to make a decision by which they've They've considered relevant information, and they can foresee the consequences of that. The conservatorship laws in the United States differ from one state to another, and they're not all as high a threshold as the Ontario law. Sometimes they involve considerations as to whether somebody has some medical issue that is going to... um, uh, and I'm not saying this as a as a test, a legal test, because I, I'm not an American lawyer and I'm not an expert in American law, but whether they have a mental disability that's going to affect their ability to um, make decisions that are in their own best interests. That's a very different test, because now you're looking at the quality of the decision making that a person uh, is making. And you're saying, well, is the quality of that decision being prejudiced by Some condition that's less than what we would say is incapacity, which leads to things like Britney Spears, who has mental health issues. So I'm led to believe, I mean, I I don't know anything about this case in detail, but I'm led to believe that she has suffered from different uh, psychological challenges and had agreed to a person making decisions for her at a particular time. Um, and that was continued and made permanent with seemingly no judge ever really taking a hard look at it. I mean, in Ontario, in private litigation, civil litigation, the parties can consent to an order being made by a judge. You know, like uh, we consent that uh, somebody has to produce documents or something like that. Well, consent orders don't work for guardianship. Right. This is not a matter where a judge is just saying, well, the people that are here in front of the court that are contesting somebody's guardian the capacity, they can decide for themselves what's going to happen. No, this is a lot more like the parents patriot jurisdiction that a judge would have dealing with vulnerable people and children. You know, is this in the best interests of the person? Now the court is, is serving a protective uh, um, function. You know, is this enough to say that there should be somebody appointed to make decisions for somebody else, again, recognizing that the standard is not whether they're making good decisions for themselves, it's whether they have capacity to make decisions. If they have capacity to make decisions for themselves, they can make good decisions or bad decisions, that's up to them. But just saying, I mean, it might be relevant to say that a person making very bad decisions and that um, is one indication that they're not capable. You know, they've taken their money out of the bank and they're giving it away to strangers in the streets. You know, what are you going to live on, Mum, if you give away all your money? Maybe we should investigate this a little bit more. And we're going to find out that actually Mum is delusional because of some you know, brain injury or something like that. And maybe it can be cured. Maybe it can't be cured, but we can we can deal with it. I get the feeling that in the United States, those predicate facts that a court has to be convinced of in order to allow a substitute decision maker to operate either on a power of attorney or what we would say is a guardianship order is different than what we're used to. It's less than what we're used to. Where a person is in her case, Britney Spears, um, on tour, making records, dealing with people. like That is not uh, indicative of incapacity, in, 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 in my view. That would be very surprising that a person is capable of doing all of those things but does not have the capacity to uh, make their own personal care decisions as to where they live and who they interact with or have control over their money. Maybe. You know, like I'm not a doctor, so I'm not saying that there's not a medical condition that might allow for her to pursue her career at the same time as having difficulties. But I've never seen anything like that. And I can't think of any case in Canada that would have that high level of function, which would admit of a substitute decision maker other than for property pursuant to a power of attorney in the old way that we use powers of attorney for just an agency, one person being able to enter into a transaction for another person on terms that the principal sets out, like the person that gives their lawyer a power of attorney to close on a house sale while they're on vacation somewhere else. I find it as a Canadian lawyer, shocking that a person that seemed highly functional is trapped by a court order made years before on consent, seemingly, and that this is going to determine what kinds of decisions that person you know, is going to make. I've been involved in matters where a person has had um, a brain injury that has been resolved Or where the brain injury over time, uh, they realize that the person actually doesn't have um, incapacity to make their own decisions. Rather, they have uh, communication problems. And, you know, they, you know, at the extreme end, that would be like locked in syndrome where you can't communicate at all, but where people can communicate, you know, using their uh, eyelid blinking, or or, or um, fingers, or something like that, and we can demonstrate that actually, in fact, they're intellectually able to make these decisions for themselves, and they ought to make decisions for themselves. I find that the from what I've heard of these um, these these notorious cases in the United States, that they would not be treated um, in the same way in Canada, not not at all. A court that where a person said. I am really highly functional. I may have, uh, uh, I might be bipolar. I might have uh, depression. I may have addiction issues. I might have all of those issues. M- may still retain capacity. They may be making bad decisions for themselves, but I would find it very surprising that a Canadian court would deny a person's ability to make decisions for themselves just because they suffer from these kinds of conditions. But the idea that somebody can have somebody else, as when you're an adult, make decisions for you just because you have psychological or psychiatric challenges, is it would be an affront to our guardianship model.
0: Yeah, you pretty much got to the last couple of questions we had. We were going to get into a little bit more specific about, um, you know, Brittany's situation because it was concerning the way that the court order was given. It seemed to focus more on her mental illness rather than her capacity to make her own decisions and appreciate the consequences of them. And also how she was being physically controlled based on her, the money and income that she was being brought in, the people she was allowed to have around her, um, other medical decisions or lack thereof. And that was a big thing as well that she, you know, she was still working. She was touring around the world. She was making multiple albums. Um,
2: Yeah, it's it's inconceivable to me in those circumstances that uh, Ontario would regard her as incapable of making decisions for her property management or personal care. It just is not the model of law that 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 we have. But, you know, so I, I get the feeling that in some of the American states, that predicate fact that allows for a substitute decision maker to have authority is far lower than in Canada. Um, But, you know, I may be wrong. I may be misunderstanding the American law. And again, I'm not an American lawyer, but it it does seem to me that it's not something that the cases and certainly in Ontario, it is not something that's reflected in the jurisprudence whatsoever. There's a body of law that deals with the valid appointment of a power of attorney and when it comes into force or the appointment of a guardian but then there's a bunch of obligations that are incumbent upon that person if they're making decisions on behalf of an incapable person. They have to act on that per- in the incapable person's best interests. You know, cutting themselves that person off from supportive family members is not in that person's best interests. In the and the the Substitute Decisions Act specifically has an obligation to facilitate contact with with um supportive family members or to a you know we have this uh, uh, uh a view of decision making where we talk about incapacity and in respect of particular decisions you know do you have capacity to make a power of attorney do you have capacity to make a will do you have capacity to uh, to enter into a marriage or a divorce or a separation? Those are all different decisions. you can be incapable of managing your property but perfectly capable of entering into a marriage, right? I mean, to deny older adults that have a cognitive impairment access to the ability to to marry seems to be completely out of order. And there's a very famous case in Ontario about just that. A man uh, married a younger woman that was his caregiver, which is also an issue in and of itself, is the regulation of caregivers and, and their own obligations. But the matter went to court when his um, family uh, challenged the the marriage because the um, consequence of a valid marriage at that time was that a uh, Will was automatically revoked, um, which would mean that when the man died, his children may not get as much of their inheritance as they expected. And the matter went before um, Mr. Justice Cullody. And Justice Cullody drew a very firm distinction between the different capacities that a person has to have or or where the law would interfere based on those capacities. And capacity to marry is not the same as capacity to understand what the legal consequences of marriage are. You know, young people that get married don't have to pass a test as to what the legal consequences of being married are. I mean, we don't have legal quizzes for that. Why is it that an older adult that understands what a marriage is and wants to have that the relationship they have with somebody else be a matrimonial one, why are they denied that if they don't have capacity to make a will? Right, One has got nothing to do with the other and that's essentially what the court said in that that situation. And so, like, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You have to look at the particular context and uh, and the the type of decision that has has to be made. And so that's you know that's also you know a a principal feature of our law.
0: You kind of covered like how it's so shocking, and I think everyone was so shocked. I think at the beginning, back in two thousand and eight, when a lot of incidents were happening, people were almost on board with it because they saw the things she were she was doing as no way a sane person would be doing these things but it's just like you said just because it's a bad decision doesn't mean that they shouldn't be allowed to make that bad decision i mean
2: yeah that's where the mental that's where the in ontario where the mental health act is distinguished from the substitute decisions act if a person has to be involuntarily admitted to a psychiatric facility um, um there's a process first of all that that deals with whether they can be involuntarily admitted or not, and you know there's, that that can go to the consent and capacity board, and there there's an administrative tribunal that will take cognizance of that. But that doesn't mean it ha- it continues for all time. You know, a person might have um, a psychotic episode leading from untreated schizophrenia, but once they're treated, they're perfectly capable. You know they might be dangerous if they're not treated, so they might be under another piece of legislation, um, uh, a mandate that they take their medication, or else they'll again be involuntarily admitted to care. But when they're they've taken their medication, why shouldn't they make decisions for themselves? It seems like in this case, at some point, this poor lady was undergoing a, a problem due to some psychological condition. And for whatever reason, like all her rights were taken away from her and it continued into the future. Um, You know, and here we would look, we would go and say, well, maybe the situation has changed and she still isn't capable of making this or that decision, but everything else that she's capable of, why can't she make decisions for herself? It it makes no sense to me, but I'm a Canadian lawyer. So what can I say? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people and that's why it became such a big issue and there's been I mean I think I've watched all the documentaries about it that have covered everything and all the issues even leading up to everything today because now she is out of her conservatorship and she got out of it and now she well, it was like a week later she finally got engaged to her boyfriend and now she can get married and has more freedom to see her children and everything that she wants to do she can do I think that might lead into a question of what you think might happen now after all of this has kind of come to light. And in California, at least, do you think that this will change the law?
2: That I don't know. I can say that if a person in Ontario, let's say I'm going to make it less extreme and say they were in um, a medically induced coma for a year and so it was necessary to make uh, uh for a guardian to be appointed let's say they didn't have a power of attorney so we had a guardian appointed for personal care and a guardian appointed for property management and the person that's in charge of personal care would be the one to um consent to healthcare treatment decide you know what's an appropriate facility for them to remain in you know long term care hospital what amongst the o- options that are given to them and then to um manage their property in their best interests and that person is brought out of the um, medically into his coma and they're treated. And let's say, you know, they're fine. Well, they now can um, require their attorney or their guardian to do what's called account to them for what actions they've taken. So you have to show like, what transactions did you enter into on my behalf? And did you, were were you meeting the standard of care that's expected, which is basically reasonableness? But were you acting in good faith as a fiduciary? And that that itself is a very, very complicated legal uh, thing. But, you know, the bottom line is the same. You know, just because you have a power of, a, of attorney for somebody and they may be incapable or a guardianship order, it it's not an ownership certificate where you get to do whatever you want and they're now reduced to your pet. You can't steal their money. You can't invest their money in your own business. So now I assume in the United States, probably the same thing is you get to say to the substitute decision makers, what have you been doing the last number of years with my money? What did you spend it on? What did you invest it in? Like, have you acted in good faith and have you acted reasonably? And if not, then you're going to have to suffer a remedy. You may have to compensate me or you may have to give up profits that you've made When you shouldn't have made profits using, you know, my property and and an attorney that acts badly or a guardian that acts badly in Ontario can suffer very, very, very robust remedies from a court, um, you know, including having to make restitution and that that's pretty severe
0: thank you for that and and you mentioned a lot about how uh britney spears's case might have gotten out of hand specifically due to the
1: differences in the predicate requirements in the u.s versus canada i was wondering looking outside of um maybe legal reasons we were talking about how there was a lot of media coverage i mean i was only i think 10 or 12 at the time um
2: but
0: Do you think that perhaps the societal pressures and the media coverage had anything to do with uh, the fact that, you know, this conservatorship was able to happen for Britney Spears and that it went on for so long?
2: I don't know. That, that's not a question that, that I can answer. I think it's fairly clear that the law of the American states differs as between the states and differs quite a lot from Canadian law. There's two questions that that arise in all of this, and and we've we've talked about it a, a bit already, which is, first of all, whether there should have been a substitute decision maker in the first place, and then second, have they acted badly or not? And so one question that arises, aside from looking at notorious cases, is how do we take the model of substitute decision making and consider what its challenges are and improve it? Now there's another balancing exercise that has to be gone through, and that's access to justice. You know, do we want people to have to go to a lawyer or have to do things in order to access substitute decision making? Or is it enough if they just fill out a form and you can take a form off the Internet, fill it out, sign it, and away you go? Um, and that's what we have now. We have, you know, literally you can take off forms from the internet, from the uh, Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee, download them, print them, fill them out, have them witnessed appropriately, and 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 you have a valid continuing uh, power of attorney for property management or personal care. Uh, some jurisdictions have started to uh, experiment with registration uh, procedures where the power of attorney has to be registered with a government department. Maybe it's not like a civil system where an important legal do- document has to be made in front of a, a quasi judicial official um, who's often called a notary, but whether there has to be a registration of the power of attorney, which provides them an opportunity for some mandatory training, like you have to watch his video, you know, the kind of, you know, when we, we pick people to be on juries, um There's training that goes on, like to explain to them, well, what's court procedure and what's expected of you and what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. We need to make substitute decision-making accessible, but at the same time, we need substitute decision-makers to know what their obligations are so that they can actually do a good job making decisions for, for other people. And that's where the Ontario statute and most statutes in Canada haven't taken that further step, and I think in part because, one, it um, mandates resources from government, and, you know, courts are not in a position to say that, you know, the Ministry of the Attorney General should have to do this as a matter of basic human rights law or something like that. It's going to be up to the provincial legislature to be able to make those kinds of determinations and amending the legislation, but there are bad uses of powers of attorney or guardianship orders like it can happen to younger people too but it's actually a more of a problem involving ol, older adults and I, I think that we could do a, a bit better about uh, in supporting older adults th- through ensuring that substitute decision makers have some form of training and there's some ability To keep track of this, because that present now, the public guardian and trustee does have a lot of statutory jurisdiction to bring things into court. You know, say this attorney is not doing well. We're going to bring it into court and make them account or we're going to make an application to be appointed uh, in their stead. And that's pretty unusual and pretty extreme because of resources and a better way of approaching this might be to have some kinds of administrative procedures in terms of registration, or perhaps even in terms of regulation. Because it's a person that isn't capable is highly vulnerable to abuse or exploitation, and I I don't know, you know, what goes on with Britney Spears or anybody else in, in these notorious cases. But it does raise issues about exploitation of a vulnerable person by somebody that has a power of attorney and is making decisions that are restrictive and don't seem to necessarily serve that person's interests. You know, that that's pretty profound. I mean, we have a legal system that's premised on our rights and freedoms being respected as a matter of law but substitute decision making can operate to take all of that away if it's done improperly or at least put a person that could be abusive or exploitative in a position to be able to deal harshly with a person whose best interest that they're supposed to be protecting
0: our last question again was kind of what you think could be changed about the current legislation around powers attorneys and guardianships and you kind of got. To that with making it accessible but making sure that those people are maybe trained properly so they understand their obligations and the effect of what they're doing
2: and better resource the public act the public officials that deal with this so you know we do the ontario uh, public guardian and trustee um is um a governmental actor that has all kinds of jurisdiction, you know, in the public interest in terms of supervision of charities and this, that all kinds of things. And one of the things they also deal with is substitute decision-making. Um, but they don't have the resources for this. Like, I mean, you know, this is unfortunately not um, an issue that, uh, Reaches prominence in the press and a public outcry necessitates that you know the budget that's allocated to the public guardian trustee is dramatically increased um you know it's not that type of an issue but it it should be it should be because it's really 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 important particularly for people of modest means where access to lawyers to begin with is difficult and also It might be that that person's actually the principal caregiver for the vulnerable party. And so if you take them away completely, you're also taking the support network away from that incapable person. And so you've got to wonder, could we avoid some of these problems by educating the people that are making the the powers of attorney as to what goes on here, like what this really is all about? There are always going to be fraudsters and criminals and people that act willfully badly. But quite frankly those that's a really small minority. A lot of the problems are where people just don't understand what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do and what their responsibilities are. But if you educated them, they would do a better job because ultimately they do they do want to do their best, but they might misapprehend what it is that they're supposed to do, especially when it comes to things like this person's not acting is not making decisions for themselves that are in their best interests. Well, lots of people (laughs) make decisions for themselves that are in their best interests. And anybody that's had a hangover will attest to that fact, you know, so there, you know, this model has to be pragmatic and accessible and has to be principled and that is a continuing evolution. Thank you so much.
0: I think that's all from us. Thank you so much. Perfect.
2: Thank you very much for this opportunity, ladies. Have a very nice day and uh, best of luck, uh, getting all the rest of the stuff together
0: before we end the show we would like to say that the views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers host or the queen's university faculty of law this podcast does not contain any legal advice pro bono students canada is a student organization this podcast was prepared with the assistance of pbsc queen's law student volunteers pbsc students are not lawyers and they are not authorized to provide legal advice the podcast contains general discussion of certain legal and related issues only If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer.